Welcome to Trust Company Talks with Bill Noble and Burke Coons. Good morning, and welcome to Trust Company Talks with Bill Noble and Burke Coons. Good morning, Bill. Mr. Coots, how are you today? I'm never better. How are you? I am doing outstanding. Excellent. And I think you both are lying. <laughs> <laughs> We're off to a great start yeah. with our best catch yet. We're extremely pleased to be joined by a very special guest this morning, someone quite well known here in the Queen City and beyond, Colonel Quincy Collins, former fighter pilot, POW, and professional speaker, and so much more. We are thrilled to have you with us today, Colonel. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Now, shall I read the back of the dust jacket to give everybody a little bit of a... Whatever you want. Sure. Give give them a good background. All right. So so Quincy Collins was a 4th of July baby back in 1931. Raised in Concord, North Carolina. He graduated... Now, wait a minute. Concord. It's Concord. Concord. (laughs) Accent on both syllables. I cannot believe I made that mistake. I'm so classic for that. He graduated from, from Concord High School, attended the Citadel in Charleston, South Carolina, and graduated with a Bachelor of Science degree in Commerce in 1953. He immediately entered the Air Force as a second lieutenant and began pilot training. 21 years later, he had accumulated over 3,000 hours of jet time with a command pilot rating and had flown all the jet fighters of the day. In 1955, Quincy was selected with 70 other Air Force lieutenants, second lieutenants to train the first three classes of military studies at the new U.S. Air Force Academy. He later earned his jump wings at Fort Benning, Georgia, while a flight commander in a F-104 unit at George Air Force Base in California. He now resides in Charlotte, North Carolina, with his wife, Catherine. Did I get through that all right? I think you did well <laughs> there, Bart. Yeah, you read really well. Great job. That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, outstanding. Well, in addition to what was on the dust jacket, there's an awful lot that's in the book as well. Colonel Collins is the author of Out of the Blue, his memoir, which I have to say is pretty outstanding. No question. And we got to know the colonel. He is a client of Trust Company in the South, mm-hmm. which we're very proud to say that. And one of the things we've tried to do with these podcasts is not just talk specifically about financial planning matters or asset management managers or estate planning matters, but also give our clients a nice taste of who are the people we work with, because we work with some really unique and fascinating mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. And the first time I met you, Colonel, you spoke to our entire firm several years ago. I don't, I don't know if you even remember. It was probably... Gosh, 15 years ago. And we had a company retreat where the, where the entire firm came down to Charlotte for a weekend. And you came in and, and, and gave an excellent speech, motivational talk, just really about a lot of things that you've talked about in the past that we'll get into later. But that was the first time I had heard you. And then I just ran into you recently and had a really good chat with you over a cocktail, which made it even more interesting. I'm sure. And, I, and after that discussion, I said, we need to interview him yes. for a podcast. So. With that being said, we now have the, the good colonel here with us today, and we're really pleased well, to have him. I think it. this is a good idea. Well, thank you. Right. But I think that it's a good opportunity for you, and it's a good opportunity for me, especially since I understand that mm-hmm. you're not going to charge me any <laughs> fees for you're going to charge us fees for speaking appearance. That wasn't part of the deal. Okay. <laughs> we were hoping the cup of coffee and the, and the lunch yeah. we're going to serve you might, might be enough. So, 
Well, there's so many things you want to cover. Yeah, indeed. And uh, you know, from your boyhood to early adulthood to your, of course, your experience in the Hanoi Hilton and beyond. But I, I wanted to start talking about, you know, the first part of the book, it's about your childhood and how you grew up. Right. It was clear in reading the book how deeply you loved your father and what a huge influence he was in your early life. And then to see it dissolve into alcoholism and the past that he chose, it was tough for me to read just because it's just so sad. And everybody has people in their life that, that struggle with substance abuse. But seeing you know up close with your own father, it was hard to read. And, and, and it's clear that that relationship is something that you know, stayed with you. Maybe tell us a little bit about you know, how your relationship with your father influenced your decisions to go to Citadel, the academy. And, and then he died, of course, when you were in prison in yeah. Vietnam. Talk about it a little bit. Well, Dad had a golden touch. He was great in the furniture business and in any business. Dad got into aviation. Mm-hmm. Runt had a, a an airplane that he named Carolyn. <laughs> that was his daughter's name. Dad really liked that airplane, and, and so Dad bought it like most everything else he touched. That he got into the CAP, Civil Air Patrol. Mm-hmm. And he taught me how to fly, and that's where I got the bug. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he would take me, if he were to pick up film or something, out here at Douglas, Mm -hmm. because 8th Air Force headquarters used to be at Douglas. And so I used to go with Dad on those kind of trips, and I would navigate. And so I got to be pretty good at Mm -hmm. navigating. Now, this is fascinating to me. So this is, you were a, a kid, a boy, and this is before you had yeah. to have any kind of license or anything like that, right? I mean, yeah, how old were you when you were, when you were flying a plane? First time you you, start, you got oh, into about it? About three. No, <laughs> no. I would say that I was 10, wow. something like that. Yeah. Uh-huh. And dad was very observant. If we were flying and he'd put me in, the, it was a tandem type thing and he'd put me beside him and off we'd go he would fly back around the airport because he knew the inspector's plane Mm -hmm. and he would check the area to be sure that he wasn't sitting down there (laughs) waiting on it you know the sheriff was in the house sometimes dad would say okay I think we better try to land out here in uh-huh. this field. Uh-huh. And he had, I don't know, a couple hundred acres that he had bought. Uh-huh. I mean, it sounded like to me, in, in reading your book, your dad was into a lot of different things, and he was quite a guy, quite a fellow. Oh, yeah. And at Christmas time yeah. and, and Thanksgiving, he would buy up all the turkeys in town and and have his salespeople particularly the route salesmen mm-hmm. that, that were out in the boondocks, and they would get big packages of turkeys and pies and this, that, and the other, and, and he would have it delivered. And, I, you know, I, I have seen Dad be standing behind the desk at the store when one of the salesmen came up and said, Mr. Collins, I want you to meet Mrs. Smith, and she's just had a fire at her house, and everything was destroyed. Mm. And Dad just says, well, we'll open a new account for her and let her go pick out what she wants and, you know, a dollar a week. I mean, Mm. they could (laughs) make the payments whatever they want. Right. 
And that was the kind of guy yeah. he was. Mm-hmm. So having read your book, I, you know, you talked about that, and then he kind of had some struggles. And the way I interpreted what you wrote was that when the, the business started struggling a little bit with your dad, that the Citadel made a lot of sense to you, from what I could tell, that you could see a career path. No, I was already there. You were already there when this was, was going on? I was already okay. there. And uh, the, the, the military I, could I possibly I saw be. quickly that my goal of taking over the furniture store right. wasn't a valid one mm-hmm. because that furniture wasn't store gonna wasn't going to be there right, right. when it got time for right. me to step in right and so dad's involvement in the cap began to make sense Mm -hmm. and dad later got me an appointment for west point and i said hell i've already had three years to settle i don't need to start over yeah this thing and and so would they have made you start all the way over going really yeah wow yeah I I wasn't a strong academic guy. Many times I would say, "Hell, I you know I'm <laughs> I'm too busy to go to school." Right. <laughs> I ran the student store. Yeah. I was drum major of the band. I played basketball and football and and wrote all the drills for the band and all those kind of things. You were a true Renaissance man, from what I could oh, tell. Yeah, sound like uh, you did it all. Yeah. And and Jesse Fisher, my 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 good friend who later became a PhD in economics, he and I were in every three act play that came down the pike. <laughs> and we had a great teacher who was in charge of the National Thespian Society. And Jesse and I just had a something that worked. Mm-hmm. You know, Clipped. it's like Abbott Costello yeah. or mm-hmm. whatever. And <laughs> he became a, a very good basso profundo. <sighs> and uh, he encouraged me to do that because I felt that I had a better voice than Jesse. And I wouldn't tell him that. But <laughs> I thought, well, you know, if I had some lessons, maybe maybe that would work. So I started yeah. a band. Yeah, right, right, yeah. Right. And I got Jesse because he played <laughs> a hell of a trombone. Uh-huh. And you were a saxophone man. I was a sax man. Yeah. And so we we went that direction. And we would play at the Moose Club in Concord. <laughs> Bill, I know you wanted to ask the Colonel about music a little bit. Did you have some yeah, one pursue thing, that a little one bit? One thing that was fascinating to me was how music kind of resonated Throughout your life, from when you were a kid growing up and and, and as a young man growing up, playing in a band, singing, you were a choir director, choral, all those things. And then when you were were a prisoner, you formed a group. Yeah, that was a double-edged sword. Which was amazing, yeah, because it could have gone either way as a... Yeah. As a, a tool for the enemy to use against you, but exactly. But you also sang at the the White House yeah. uh, after you got out. Nixon from, wanted yeah required to sing the hymn that I wrote. Yeah, you, you even wrote lyrics to to different yeah. hymns and things, and that I found that really fascinating. I'm, I love music, and I've got a pretty 
extensive music background myself. So I found that very interesting. Those lyrics. Yeah, that was great. Oh, God, to thee we raise this prayer and sing (laughs) from within these foreign prison walls. We're men who wear the gold and silver wings and proudly heed our nation's calls. Give us strength to withstand all the harm that the hand of our enemy captors can do, to inflict pain and strife and deprive every life of the rights they know well we are due. (laughs) We pledge unswerving faith and loyalty to our cause, America and the <laughs> you still got it, man. You still got it. Wow. Now that, that I thought I thought that was just fascinating. That it's obviously given you joy and probably been a sustainer, a sustainer for you, especially yeah. when you were in that prison for seven and a half years. I, you know, it's just unfathomable to me in a seven by seven cell, and and you putting that together. That that was just kind of very touching to me that you not only did it, but you took the time to write the lyrics and everything right. too. You weren't just singing well singing uh, songs. I, I didn't have anything to write with yeah, to yeah. start with. So I ended up getting a fish bone that was sort of like that, hollow end, mm-hmm. and I got diarrhea pills and mixed it with water to get an ink and that worked great Hmm. and now i i needed a a straight edge to draw the lines for the The clefts clefts and so forth so i I found a piece of wood i think it was a tree part of a tree limb and i i just start rubbing that thing on the cement floor and pretty soon, I got me a straight edge. Yeah. And I could make that fishbone operate. You know, there were a thousand great stories that I'm sure didn't even make it into the book. There were a few that, that just leapt off the pages to me. And since we were talking about the music, that sort of led into a question I had about the code that y'all developed to communicate with each other. Yeah. Thing where you had a, a way of communicating with the folks that were in the cells next to each other. I immediately decided that I would have never been able to communicate with anybody. Yeah. <laughs> I would have been yeah, there by that's... myself for forever. Well, the first code That was, was fascinating, yeah. It really was. That's A. Mm-hmm. That's B. That's C. Uh-huh. That's a long-ass way Off to... Of that. <laughs> because say, the yeah. first guy that moved in the next cell to me, you couldn't see him. You got a wall, not bars. Right. His name was Halliburton. <laughs> and you can imagine how long my ass sat there trying to get Halliburton. But it sounded like yeah. y'all y'all really perfected it. I mean, you oh, knew all the guys. Could, all we the... could tap as fast as we could talk. Yeah, right. that's that's amazing to me. I just and that came from the normal prison system in this country. Right, right. Mm-hmm. That's that where we that got wound that. up getting imported from that, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, maybe your musical background helped you learn learn it faster. Oh yeah, yeah. Before we get into that, let's go back a little bit. So the things that, that I, I took away from the early part of your book, you went to the Citadel, you decided to go in the Air Force, you were a very good student there, and 
rose to the top of the different fighter pilot levels and all, all of that. And you ultimately were one of the first instructors at the Air Force Academy, yeah. which was founded, I think, in 1955. Is that right? right? So you were doing all that, which was amazing. I mean, tell us a little bit about the Air Force Academy Well, and, and your, uh, your involvement there. The Air there. Force Academy came into my life at about the time <laughs> that I was finishing F-86 training, which is what they used fighters in Korea. And I hurt my back somehow. And they, the doc said, well, I think that we, we want to get you over this hump so that this back won't be a problem. But it's been a problem ever since. <laughs> wow. And so it moved me back a class. And the squadron commander who was in charge of finishing me up, I went in to apply for regular. At that time, you had to apply for it. And I wanted to be a regular Air Force officer. So I went in and I had all my paperwork there and I gave it to him and he looked at it and he looked up at me and he said, so you went to the Citadel? And I said, yes, sir. He said, well, I got no use for anybody who went to the Citadel. (laughs) And I thought, what the (laughs) matter with this guy? Right. I remember that part. I mean, here I am trying to become a regular officer and he, he won't even fill out my paperwork. So I gave him a good salute, and I left. And I went to the personnel office at Nellis Air Force Base. This major handled all the fighter pilot stuff. And I told him what had happened. He said, Jesus, Mm -hmm. that's just not good PR for the Air Force. Not good leadership. I mean, what does he know about you? And he says, I've got an idea. There's a colonel coming on base in the next couple of weeks from the new Air Force Academy. And his name is Colonel Stillman, Moose Stillman. So why don't we get you in front of him? Because he's looking for people to train train him. Mm -hmm. And you've been to the Citadel. You've been through all that. This might be a perfect deal. Mm-hmm. And I said, sounds great to me. <laughs> Line me up, you know. And then he got me an assignment, a temporary assignment at base operations. I had F-86s. I had T-6s. I had H-19 helicopters. All these mm-hmm. things I could fly. And so I said, that's great. Let's do that. And then I had in the back of my head, General Roberts, he runs this gunnery Mm -hmm. school. So I said, next time he comes into this base operations, I'm going to see if I can't corner him. And I went to my boss, who was a guy named Tiny Manch. Tiny Manch was just the opposite of his name. He was a big strapping guy who later was killed trying to eject Mm -hmm. from a T-33, and he didn't make it. But that was much later. So Moose Stillman, first All-American football player from West Point. Also, first guy I ever met who was a POW. Hmm. He was shot down over the Pulaski oil fields and... Spent two or three years because they didn't, wars didn't last that long back then. I, 
I ended up being one of the longest sure. incarcerated Americans ever in war. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't something I wanted. <laughs> yeah, right. And so he came in. He's got all of his medals and everything on. And he says, so you're a Citadel guy. I said, yes, sir. He says, well, tell me about this airplane you're flying now, the F-86. Hell of an airplane, sir. And I went into some of the aerodynamics mm-hmm. of, of this plane, particularly stalls, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. So he said, well, let me ask you something else. You, you mentioned that you were into music. I said, yes, sir. He said, well, I play bass horn." tuba and i sing bass in the choir and i'm i'm looking for somebody to head up the protestant choir all right and i said well Music i don't think the- you have to <laughs> look much further because i think i can handle that yeah so that was what happened there yeah, I mean, it, it was a great point of connectivity. I mean, you met, you connected Here, with a lot of different people. Here's the, here's the idea. Yeah. If you want something, go after it. Yeah. Don't round with it. Just go after it. You can, you can make it work. Yeah. So I did. He became my mentor, and he was a sweetheart for the Air Force. He was a POW. He had all those credentials, yeah. and little did I know. I was going to be in about four or five times longer than he was a POW. Yeah, but I just want to talk about just the experience of actually when you got shot down. I mean, that was that was pretty riveting to me. I mean, in in the in the book, that was uh, was nineteen sixty five. I believe that was September. I think September second. September second. Yeah, nineteen sixty five. You were shot down, and you had to eject. Well, get really lower. I had to eject. I don't know how I sure. got out of that <laughs> yeah, airplane. Yeah, yeah. It, it didn't sound like it went quite I, according I, to plan, I, but I don't know if the damn thing exploded and shot Punched me out. out of there, and my chute opened automatically. Mm-hmm. Or whether I had already started going through the the ejection ejection procedures, right? But it was all in slow motion. Mm. I I remember I could just barely get those hands out there, and I needed to get a hold of the trigger in order to fire the seat. But I don't remember getting that. Mm -hmm. Next thing I know, I'm leaning up against a palm tree. And I don't see any seat. I don't see any chute. I don't see any emergency equipment or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I see four guys mm-hmm. squatting down over here with their guns pointed to me, and they are the militia. Mm-hmm. These guys are older than I am mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. And they kept their guns Rifles. right on me. Mm-hmm. And I, I looked down to see if I got arms, and I got arms, although I couldn't lift them. And I looked, and I saw my right leg and my right knee and everything there. But I looked on the left, and there's no foot. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking out here, and I there's my foot. Mm. And it's stretched from above the knee. It's just stretched out there. And I'm bleeding like mad. And I'm thinking, oh, shit. Not a good day. Not a good day. (laughs) Not a good day. 
and I motion for them to come take a look. And they put their guns down, and they came over, and they had a conversation. And they decided then to move this left leg back into position which threw me into a hell of a lot of pain. Mm-hmm. I mean, I never have hurt so bad. I can't imagine. And they, they pulled that thing around there and started wrapping vine around it. And as soon as they did that, then they lifted me up and a Russian jeep or something like it mm-hmm. pulled in and they just threw me in the back of that jeep. Yeah, and the thing that to me, that was amazing was that you go into great detail in your book is that ultimately it did save your leg, though. I mean, that they were tying it back together oh, with vines. The guy. I mean, that's pretty amazing. Who did that operation on my left leg, knee, was educated at the Sorbonne. That's amazing. Oh, wow. In France. I mean, crazy. And my doctors, when I got back, said, don't touch that knee. It's as good as you want it to be mm. right now. So. Then you're you're in the belly of the beast, and you're <laughs> and you're you're in you're in prison now. Yeah, you're in POW yep. hell, which went on for seven and a half years, which is yep. truly amazing. That is, and, and you know, it's you 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 play with your own mind, right. and you're trying to things in the proper perspective. Now I had I had the right training for for me to have faith in God and what was going to be happening to me and so forth and so that never was a problem and I I learned to pray really good <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, you mentioned in your book too how the, your your training at Citadel was it was a real yeah. help to you too to, yeah. add, to maintain the discipline. The mental discipline to hang in there and 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 That's not it. not you, you fall apart. Don't give up. Yeah, don't give up. That was very don't give up. Telling you to you me, keep working at it. And to talk about also, you you mentioned they moved you around a lot, but there was a there was a time where you were you had two cellmates, Norm and Mike, and y'all would tell stories to each other to keep your minds. Oh yeah, you would start a story and then you then another guy would take we it over. We decided we would have Sunday really interesting. book book study time. Mm-hmm. And, T- tell tell the story about teaching Mike to dance. Oh. <laughs> Mike came to me one Sunday, and, and so I, I said, Now, Mike, tell me a little bit about your wife. Jerry was her name. Well, she loves to dance. And if I could dance when I get back, that would be a huge surprise for her. And so... And you'd be in the Renaissance man that you were. Yeah. <laughs> So I, I went to I went to my music mm-hmm. guy, who was Norm. He he knew a lot of songs, and I said, Norm, can you be the orchestra? Can you be the band and hum the music while I teach my steps and a, a routine and that sort of thing? No. I am not going to do that. I said, well, why? He says, it's very simple. If the guards open the peephole and look in and see the two of you standing there holding each other, what do you think they're going to (laughs) think? 
<laughs> I said, well, you got a point there. So we changed the, the deal a little bit, and I, I did the music too. And I finally decided the best thing to do is just teach Mike a routine to include dipping uh-huh. and, and going twirling. out and twirling and stuff. And, and Norm said, I think that's a good idea. So we started doing that. And by this time, Norm told me he wanted to learn to play the piano. Well, I got no damn piano mm-hmm. in prison cell, but I do have a pair of crutches. So we had a, a pencil. I don't know where we got it, but we had a pencil. And I wrote the keyboard on oh, wow. a pair of crutches. That's pretty amazing. What's so amazing to me that about like when we were talking about how you communicated with one another and then all these just amazing, innovative ways you came up to teach music and teach dance and all these things. This is why you were you were completely the food was horrible. You you, you had dysentery, <laughs> you had every everything you, you got down to like 122 pounds, I think you said. You had in pneumonia, the you had that. How the you kept your mental your arm, acuity right? to me was just amazing. You just yeah, just you ain't going anywhere. Yeah. It ain't gonna get any better. It didn't go get any better. There's no no hope. You didn't yeah. you didn't even correct me if I'm wrong here, but I remember you for some reason some people got to send letters and some people didn't. You didn't even receive a letter or get to or send a letter for five I was, years. I was five years without even getting a letter. Yeah, and and the letter you and the first letter got, I got told you about was your dad two years old. Yeah. And told me of dad's demise. Your dad's passing, which was two years old when you got it. How awful that must have been. I can't even imagine. That was, that was tough. Yeah. But then there's these incredible stories of hope, like when you did the Christmas carols. And I still don't know how they let y'all do that. I guess they wanted to make propaganda out of it or something. But yeah. but then yeah. y'all changed the lyrics to this defiant. I uh, changed the lyrics because right. yeah. I was singing the solo. So you talked a lot about the head commandant or the, or the main inquisitor. Inquisitors, your- y'all called him the rabbit. And yeah. And he was probably, to put it nicely, he was not very well liked he by any of your... son of a bitch. Yeah. There's yeah. no getting around it. Completely belligerent. He, he knew how to play the game if he wanted to get something. Mm-hmm. And so I tried to do some negotiating with him. Mm-hmm. But hell, he's, he's got everything right, in What his cards state. do you have? Yeah, right? yeah, you, you didn't have a lot of... He had the whole deck, didn't he? Yeah. But it was worth a try, and to a certain extent, it worked. One of the best things that happened was that w- one of my buddies in the choir was Harry. I, through the contacting, through tapping, mm-hmm. through buildings, I, I asked Harry, I said, Harry, I got an idea. Remember that last time I negotiated with the rabbit on our singing? that they were to play the recording of our Christmas carols and so forth, and they didn't play it. They just ignored it. Ignored it. Mm -hmm. I got a plan that we can maybe get even with them. Now, this is called Revenge 101, you know. And I said, it could get us hurt, killed, or otherwise maimed, but I'm just sort of determined to do this. You want to join me? (laughs) And he sent back, whatever you want to do, Quince, let's do it. 
So I decided I'd work with the, the rabbit, and I, I said, Rabbit, I've been thinking about the, your music, your, your music that you play for us mm-hmm. some almost every day. And I said, there's one song I really like, and he knew the song. Mm-hmm. He said, yeah, I, I know that song. I said, suppose you gave me music or records for those, and I translated them into English, and we played this for the troops, for, for our guys. He said, are you serious? I said, yeah, I think I could do that. And so we discussed it many times. And then finally he says, okay, give me a, give me a script. And he gave me a record that he would play and I could listen to it. And Harry said, I don't know how you're going to pull this off. <laughs> <laughs> But if he finds out, how how are you going to work this? I'm going to say, this is the Camp BS. (laughs) He said, what? I said, yeah, we're going to use this program. We'll be known as the Camp BS. And we'll go from there. And we can make songs whatever we want. We can put in lyrics we want and so forth and so on. He said, all right. So I wrote the script. And the rabbit who spoke English better than I did said, Kong, uh, my Vietnamese name is Kong, like King Kong. And he said, Kong, what, what is, what is this camp BS? I said, on radio in our country, everything is so and so broadcasting system. <laughs> he said, really? I said, yeah. So this is camp BS. He says, sounds good to me. <laughs> so he says, let's use it. You slipped one in on the right. Oh, boy, did we. And we, yeah. we changed the lyrics. So we did that. And part of it was you were, you were communicating with your other Prisoner. prisoners, yeah. you know, messages and things like that, yeah. right? Yeah. Right. right. And it was kind of like a, maybe I'm interpreting it wrong, but it kind of seemed like to me it was kind of a rallying thing or something that kept uh, sure. people, kept, kept everybody's spirits, you know. Well, any time that something musical would come on, mm-hmm. they'd, they'd pay attention because, yeah. They, they knew that I was going to try to work something yeah. mm-hmm. in there. And, but as you might expect, one of the rabbit's stool pigeons told on me. And that's when I went into uh, the solitary, solitary mm-hmm. confinement. Yeah. Wow. Interestingly enough, they sent me out to this camp where there was maybe 10 guys and they were they were up, elevated, and had their cells yeah, on, on the on an elevated deal. And they had me taking care of a guy named Scotty Morgan, who was from Ash, who ended up, when we returned, he became Senator Faircloth's... Locke Faircloth. Huh. Locke Faircloth's mm-hmm. chief Aide assistant Cont, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so when I wa- walked in and saw... Scotty, his his legs looked like that. He, he just didn't look like he was here long for long. Right. And I thought, oh, shit, they're wanting me to be a witness to his death. So, because they were feeding him milk and meat and everything, I got the same old shit. 
mm-hmm. that I had been getting. So it didn't help me any. So we made it through that. Scotty made it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, it's just, I mean, there was just so many stories in your book about what you went through. And we can talk about this stuff all day. Well, I just wanted to yeah. ask you. I know that so, so Senator McCain doesn't make a direct appearance in your book. But uh, but, uh, yeah. but but he was in there with you, though. Well, John we McCain, we're talking the last, about, right? about the last year and a half mm-hmm. in the same prison cell. Mm-hmm. The same cell? Yeah. Right. And John and I became the entertainers, I guess you'd might say we provided entertainment for the troops Mm -hmm. john knew a bunch of movies and he could tell them in technical (laughs) and sundays particularly we would have movie night but at any rate you were very complimentary of him as far as his because his was his dad was a uh, admiral admiral and they knew it and they and were his trying grandfather also yeah and they, and and the, and the Vietnamese knew it and they were trying to yeah. trying to do everything they could to kind of oh, they put the treatment him on him a yeah. freeway out and fortunately he said no yeah and he he manned up and yeah. said no i'll go when everybody else goes. yeah we spoke a, very very highly of him deal. Yeah, that's pretty pretty impressive. And that's amazing. I mean, that how many people do you think would make that trade today mm. in today's world? Oh my god! Yeah, and we'll, <laughs> we're, we want to talk about the word freedom and what it means to you. So the Paris Accords mm-hmm. come around in 1972, 73, and finally you're going home after seven years of your life. I mean, I just can't imagine. And, and you talk, you wrote in the book about how. You knew it was going on, and y'all knew you were. It was kind of like being on the two yard line, but you, you know, you're in scoring territory, and y'all got very. Everybody was very antsy at the time and very nervous because suddenly you had hope well, that you the might. Rabbit is reading. Yeah, he was reading the the Paris and he's reading to you. it in Vietnamese, right? And then he translates, and we had already been told by our senior people, do not show one bit of emotion or happiness or anything like just nothing yeah because i mean you you didn't want to give them anything you didn't want to give them anything yeah so just to, yeah the rabbit dismissed us and the the rabbit had explained how c141s were going to fly in and take us out in different groups and it was going to be over a period of time. And when we when we got into our cell and the Vietnamese locked the lock, all hell tore loose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, we're yeah. running around. Can we imagine? I, 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 I can't even fathom what that must have and felt then like. then about 22 of us were picked out of that one big cell. And we were taken to another deal and obviously we're going to be the first out Mm -hmm. well so you go through this literally living hell for seven and a half years and then suddenly you come back you're coming back to the united states and and that part to me was just so you know you you grew up a southern boy i I grew up here in north carolina and and i grew up in the the 30s and the 40s i I thought of my father a lot reading this book because my dad is two years younger Mm -hmm. than you and my dad was in the military also but you know, you, your your youth of growing up, that, that so many of those things I'd heard from my dad. You know, y- y'all y'all are so much on the same plane. But just to have seven years of your life 
ripped out into a just a complete, for lack of a better word, just a living hell. And then to come back to the United States, I mean, I just can't imagine. But it didn't. You know what it was like. I mean, come quite like that. Yeah. Okay, we're over in Vietnam. You talk about the transition. Here's yeah. Clark. Yeah. Okay, they, they take us down in buses, and we have bombed the Red River bridges, so they can't do anything mm-hmm. about that. As as we drove across the river on pontoon bridges, mm-hmm. we looked up, and we could see thousands and thousand particularly women because there weren't any men left Mm -hmm. most of them had been killed shot whatever and they got these yokes on their shoulders and they're carrying stuff up to repair that bridge so we got across there and then we drove down the road and we stopped and there was a big red cross flag not the american red cross it was the Vietnam Red Cross. Hmm. So we, they said there's a little mix-up down at the flight line. And come on in, and we'll give you a beer, and then we'll get on down when they're ready. So they gave us a beer like that, which was, you know, one gulp. It was, <laughs> it was gone. <laughs> and so then they said, okay, load up. And they told us that when we get off the bus, we get in two lines beside the bus. So we get down the flight line and there are the most beautiful airplane I had ever seen. <laughs> C-141, damn. I, I would have even... I'd, I'd have taken the buggy if sure. it'd been available, but there it is sitting over there. So we get up, we get out, we get in two lines, and right up there is the rabbit. He's sitting at a table, and he's got a book, and it's the sign-out book, and we've all got to sign out. So I go up, and I, he gives me a pen, and I write my name, and I put the pen down. And then I just sort of looked him straight in the eye. And I had never called him the rabbit to his face. Mm -hmm. I said, you know what, rabbit? The best part of this deal is I get to leave, but you got to (laughs) stay. And then I thought, oh, shit, I better get out of here. (laughs) He He can reverse things here. So I saw an Air Force colonel over here with the flags, and I ran over to the colonel, and I said, get me on that airplane right quick. (laughs) This guy may change his mind on me. So he got me on, got people around so they couldn't get to me. Oh, boy. And then we got up, and there were a bunch of nurses. The nurse said, "Are, are you Captain Collins? I said, yes. Nobody came after me, closed up the doors, taxied out. They get at the end of the runway, and the pilot comes on and says, okay, we're going to run up and check the engines. I hope everything is well. (laughs) And then the engines all come up, and then he said, looks good. And he lets loose of the brakes. 
down the runway we go. And we were all just hanging on to God make that airplane get up in the air. Yeah. Just get up in the air. Mm. And then you can feel it lift off. And then you can hear the gear locking in place. That's it. Yeah, that's when that's you knew. it. That's when you knew you were really. Mm. I cannot imagine. And so we we fly around Clark Air Base because they turned out every American that was within a hundred miles. I'm sure. <laughs> and so we landed taxi in, and they had already decided that Admiral Denton is going to be our spokesman. First airplane out of Hanoi. So he, he says, basically, we thank you for praying for our release and doing all the things that you have done on our behalf, and God bless America. It, that was the last thing he said, God bless America. One of my buddies came up to me. He said, Quince, have, have you been to anywhere that they gave you letters or anything? Or you got to call home? I said, no. Yeah. He says, I haven't either. I said, come with me. So we went in the room where there were a bunch of colonels and some generals. And I just said, hey. Guys, everybody else is getting to call home and get mail and that sort of thing. And my friend and I haven't gotten any of that. Yeah. What's going on? So one of the colonels says, come with me, Colonel Collins. And so we went into another room and he says, I have this letter for you. We don't understand it. Maybe you will. So he gave it to me. I opened it up and it said, dear Quince, Welcome home. The boys are excited about seeing you, but we're not going to be living together anymore. So uh, that was the, the first dagger punch. And I said, it's pretty clear to me. What is it about this letter that you don't understand? Right. And they said, well, you want to go ahead and call home? I said, yeah, because I thought just talking to me is going to make a difference. So got her on the line, and she didn't give an inch. She didn't give an inch. And she didn't save a penny for me because the Air Force gave her all of my pay. Yeah, you wrote about that in the book. That was hard for me to, to understand. Just yeah. off. It doesn't make sense yeah. to me. They got a car and took me over and I got to see my boys. They they didn't remember me. Sure. Yeah. And of course that was a downer. <laughs> what the hell do you mean you don't know me? Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Well, well, they were all little kids when you left. And it's been an uphill battle yeah. ever since then. Yeah, I can imagine. Ever since. Well, life's life's long. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. As we were preparing for this, your life is a perfect example of how it's not always a straight line to glory and wonder. I mean, mm-hmm. there's... There's mountains and valleys, and you've had more than your fair share. No question. You know, it's it, in in some ways, it's it's kind of like investing, where you you know you're there are ups and downs, but focusing on the long term is the only way you can really kind of keep your sanity. What do you mean the market tanked? <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It, we talked about the parallels of the ups and downs you went through. It's a long journey. Life is a long journey. Right. 
investing's a long journey. We we thought we talked about that. I, when you think about it, you know, a market is just a bunch of people, yeah. and, and people have their ups and downs. <laughs> yeah. And over the long period, yeah. over the long haul, you know, you've experienced more than your fair share. You wrote in your book about how you had always generally been a positive person. Yeah. And that you always believe if you're ever going to achieve anything in life, you got to be positive. So what super impressed me ultimately about your book was that after going through all that and then coming back to that very tough reality of not reconnecting with your your wife, that you were able to still turn your life around, go and do a lot of speaking, ultimately meeting, sounds like the most wonderful woman in the world, Catherine, and having a great real estate career. And you've just done all these amazing things and, and just turned your life around. And, and you're still here to tell about it. I mean, to begin with, I mean, just like going through all these things. It's almost like cast away the sequel, you know, the Tom Hanks yeah, movie where yeah. he comes home and everything's different than your life. We actually get to see, you know, someone have success after they get home and happiness, you know, take that. Yeah, and I, the other thing I kept thinking about too on reading your book was you got very, you know, I, I love the part about the Freedom Foundation that you're involved with. And I mean, you, you wrote a lot of interesting things about, you know, our country is, in, is, it's been a very tough four or five years for our country on so many different levels. And I don't want to, I don't want to get very political and all this stuff, but anybody that has experienced and gone through what you have, first of all, I salute you for it. And I hold you in the highest regard. Anybody served in the military to begin with, I have the, utmost respect for but the people in our country that don't realize the price of freedom what it is and the cost of it and that don't respect the people who have paid the price such as yourself who've paid the ultimate price the ultimate price is your life and and you you basically gave one life and somehow you're lucky enough to be still living in the flesh and you you've turned lemons into lemonade and and i salute you for it i think it's it's a great story and it's what a difference you made in the community and in yeah, the country. I mean, you know, after ran for Congress, right. I mean, met you've met. I was amazed at all the different people you've right. met. I mean, you met Cecil B. DeMille. Right. <laughs> all these, you, you have lived a fascinating life. All well, these different, and I guess I think it was was it Sam Nunn who said to you, you know, you're always going to be known as a POW. You know, what are you going to do with what it? are you going to do with that? Yeah, I you thought know, that was interesting. I was challenged. Right. Yeah. And I, I just, and, and what you've done, you know, since that challenge is issued, you know, it's continued to enrich the lives of people that you come into contact with, like us. Before we go, just tell yeah. us a little bit about your involvement with, with the Carolinas Freedom Foundation. Yeah, that's a, that's a very great well, organization. That started on the day that I was selected to be the dedication speaker for the Concord Regional Airport. And so I went out to make my remarks, and because I had already agreed to be the, the Grand Marshal or as the Grand Marshal mm-hmm. for the Charlotte Parade. So I drove directly from Concord to place that I was to be in Charlotte. And so I got up on flatbed, and I'm sitting beside this old codger. And I said, well, how how long have you guys been doing this? He said, well, we've been doing this for about 18, 17, 18 years. I said, you mean you've been throwing your own parades (laughs) to honor yourselves? He said, yes, sir. And I said to myself, that ain't going to be for long. So I wrote Richard Venroot, who was the mayor at the time, and Ann Schrader, who was 
head of the county. And I, I said, this can't be. I mean, I, that'd be like me having a parade for me. Right. For, for my return. And it just doesn't make sense. We need to be putting on a parade to honor these veterans in a much different way. So they agreed. Hugh McCall agreed. John Belk agreed. Brought all the players in. So all the players got involved, and we we opened up. We wasn't called Carolina's Freedom Foundation then, but we had something close to that. And then I did this, my secretary and myself, we did it for the next 10 years ourselves. And I said, hey, you know, I don't want this thing to dry up and go away when I die. Right, right. So let's make some changes here. Now they have a follow-on situation and they've got some really good people running it. My executive director is Susan Yarber, and she's great. And it's an actual foundation that is theoretically set up for perpetuity, or is... is In essence, yeah, yes. Right, right. Yeah. That's, that's wonderful. And it, you know, costs some money to operate, but we provide flags for all the schools. We cater to the junior ROTC groups, and there's over 4,000 of them in Mecklenburg County. And we give awards for merit, mm-hmm. things that they do to to distinguish themselves and Excellent. so forth. And we do the parade. We have a book review that each school gets involved in and we we award and recognize those that give the best reports on I, I'd love to see <laughs> sure. that make the list one day and maybe it will but that'd be alright I don't have to do it while I'm alive again. Mm-hmm. but at any rate I'm proud as I can be over what we've been able to accomplish and it just comes from Getting off your ass and getting busy. That's right. <laughs> and that's true in, in any endeavor. You just got to get off your ass and get moving. And I guess it's true even if you're stuck in a prison, even if you're sitting on your ass, you can keep yourself busy somehow. I wish we could talk all day about yeah. this stuff because there are so many other things we didn't touch on from your book about you live life full full throttle. Well, Colonel, you've been incredibly generous with, generous with your time and generous with your story and, and with your life. This has been an extraordinary experience no, sitting no here. No question. No question. Well, thank you. And, I appreciate uh, it. I know people are going to be excited to, to listen to this, and, and uh, I can't wait to go back and listen again myself. Yeah. And well, I, I hope just, you can do something with this that will encourage and motivate others to you know, get off their ass and get moving. And do, and do something good. Do yeah. something that contributes to society and our country. I, I exactly. agree. I agree. I hope, I hope somebody will hear this and be inspired from it. So Great. So we certainly appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure. My privilege. Thank you, Colonel. It's, it's been a real pleasure Good. to me. My pleasure. Talk soon. 
Thank you for listening to Trust Company Talks. These opinions are intended as entertainment. Any opinions expressed on this podcast by Bill Noble, Burke Coons, or anyone else are not necessarily those of Trust Company of the South. There is no guarantee that these statements, opinions, or forecasts provided herein will prove to be accurate. Any information is not a complete summary or statement of all available data necessary for making an investment decision and does not constitute a recommendation. These materials are not intended to be tax or legal advice. Readers are encouraged to consult their own legal tax and investment advisor before implementing any financial strategy.